Okay, so we are live. I would like to welcome back everyone who is returning for the third part of this class. Uh, and for those who are new, welcome for the first time. This is King Solomon and his demons with Rabbi David Silver. So we hope that everyone is okay <laughs> in all the current mess and distress of the world. And hopefully a little learning will help to at least cheer us up and entertain us for a bit and maybe add more to our lives. So Rabbi Silver, whenever you're ready. I am ready. Thank you, Noah. Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody. I'm not sure that the uh, particular Gemaras we'll be looking at the next couple of sessions are going to cheer anybody up. Um, they are very reflective. They're really contemplations on life and death is what it is. And they're quite famous. Uh, looking forward to discussing them. I just wanted to, before we begin, and Noah will put up the sources on the screen. Um, last week, we focused in on a uh, Midrash in Vayikra Rabbah, which was interesting from a number of perspectives. First of all, the Midrash, you get a sense of what how these Midrashim are, that's it, thank you, are, are working. The Midrash, Vayikra Rabbah, what they call a homiletic midrash, educational midrash. The larger theme of the midrash in this twelfth uh, section of the midrash is about drinking, about wine. Um, you might say, you know, alcohol, wine. We can broaden that from our own perspective. Substances, dangerous substances. That's what the larger issue is here in this midrash. But so, and the reason it comes here is because in the Torah, there's a, a commandment to Aaron that when he or his children work in the uh, Mishkan, the temple, they're not permitted to drink wine. That's the text in Vayikra. You and your children should drink no wine when you do the service in the temple. So that becomes the occasion for these, this particular section to talk about wine and the dangers of wine. And the focus that what interested us for our purposes was the section which we have on our screen, Amrav Yudin, it's uh, the fifth portion, fifth section of the 12th uh, Piskai in Vayikra. And it talks about Shlomo. And what it says in this Midrash, this is not in the text of the Tanakh, but in the Midrash, that Shlomo had built, it took him seven years to build the Beit HaMikdash, that it does say in the book of Mulachim, took him seven years. So the Midrash says those seven years, he drank no wine. There was no drinking of wine all the time that he abstained from wine all the seven years. Now he's finished building the Beit HaMikdash and the next day there's gonna be a big inaugural celebration of the temple. But the night before, uh, he is to inaugurate the Beit HaMikdash, he gets, he's, he's married the Pharaoh's daughter. And there's a rather wild celebration that takes place all night, a lot of drinking. And on that night, it was seven years he hadn't drunk wine, and that night there's drinking, there's dancing, there's partying, there's he and Pharaoh's daughter. And this entire celebration with the wine, with the dancing, and there's also celebrations because the temple's been completed. 
So the two celebrations are going on at the same time. Midrash is very graphic about this. And Shlomo is very exhausted from the big partying. So he goes to sleep and he doesn't wake up till in the Midrash Arba Shalt until the fourth hour, which means the fourth hour of the day. The day is 12 hours. So each hour, six to six. If it has more hours, each hour is, is longer than 60 minutes, but four hours is a third of the day. And that is considered to be very late in Tanaitic Midrashic thinking. It's very late. So we sound asleep. And the problem is that under his head, he has the keys to the temple. So he can't, uh, he can't, uh, the people, what's going on? They want to inaugurate the Beit Mikdash, and this fellow is asleep. And under his head are the keys. So according to this Midrash, the Midrash suggests that two different people come in to rebuke him. One is Yeravam ben Nevat. Yeravam ben Nevat is a character that we'll get to, not this week, but hopefully before we complete the set of sessions. He's the king who takes over after Shlomo's death. That is to say the kingdom is divided after Shlomo's death. And Yeravam, uh, it becomes the king of the majority of the tribes. Shlomo's son has two tribes and Yeravam has 10. And we know, and we'll get to this, that Yeravam actually works for Shlomo and becomes disenchanted with Shlomo and becomes Shlomo's enemy. And we'll see all about this later on. The, uh, one of the terms that's used for Yeravam ben Nevat, he becomes a Satan for Shlomo. In fact, the word Satan, which means probably in the context an adversary, but we know Satan is Satan. And I call these sessions Solomon and his, and his demons. And we'll get to that. Not this week, but we'll get to Solomon's demons. But in the text of the book of Murachim, he has several demons. He has several Satans, several adversaries. So that's one of them. And the Midrash discusses Yeravam. We'll, we'll come back to him. But the bulk of the Midrash is about Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. And this becomes an opportunity for this Midrash to uh, present us with an extended drasha on the first nine verses of chapter 31 of the book of Proverbs, of, of Mishlei. Because the, there it speaks about drinking, the dangers of drinking, how drinking can distort one's thinking. And it begins with the verse that's cited in the Midrash, Maburi Umar Babidni. Umar bar Nidri. So it sounds like it's a, someone talking to their child, which is the mother talking to her child over here and warning the child about the dangers of wine. You have the mother actually warning uh, her son about, about, for example, do not give your strength to women. This is the mother talking. Wine is not for kings, no, no strong drink. So it's a parent, in this case, the mother giving Musa to her son. And that's what these verses are about. Wine is not for you. Wine distorts your judgment. Wine can be given to those in distress. The verse speaks of giving wine to one in distress. The Talmud speaks of that as well. But it's not for a judge and it's not for a king. Remembering that a king is also a judge in the Bible. 
So this becomes an opportunity for the Midrash to, uh, to uh, explain the verses in Mishlei. It's an opportunity to connect the verses in Mishlei to the subject of Vayikra, namely, those in service should not drink. In the Torah, it's the priest that shouldn't drink. In the Midrash, it's not just the priest, it's the king. And, and the point of tangency between the king and the priest is what it says in the Torah, that the priest has the job to, to, to give guidance, to teach Torah. So the priest seems to be also a teacher. And the king is a judge. So the judge teacher, there's a connection over there. So the Midrash ties those two things together. What interested us over here primarily is this idea of the Midrash that Shlomo, uh, that the marriage to Pharaoh's daughter precludes Shlomo from actually uh, opening up the temple. He's sleeping on the keys as it, as it were. And that's what they're picking up on is the, is the, are the chapters in the book of Mulachim completely absent from Divrei Hayamim, not there at all. But in the book of Mulachim, it presents a very, very nuanced picture of Shlomo. And basically we have to remember, and I pointed this out last week, that if you read the first two chapters of Kings as simply the culmination of the book of Shmuel, as many people do, because after all, that's when David's kingship becomes real. You, it, kingship becomes solidified through a, through, a, through a successor. If that be the case, if you read it that way, then the first verse of the king book actually is chapter three, verse one. But chapter three, verse one is that, fi, that Solomon married the daughter of Paro. He became a mechutan to, to Pharaoh. That's the first verse, actually, if you think about it. First thing he does when he's, after he solidifies the kingship, first verse, before the temple, before the judgment, for anything. He's married to Paro's daughter. So you can see the marriage to Paro's daughter as undercutting the kingship, as if the book is saying, this is how I presented it last week, the book of Kings is a book about exile. It's about how we end up in exile. The kingdom is divided and separately the two parts are exiled. And the book of Kings perhaps is someone sitting in exile and asking the question, how do we get in this mess in the first place? Trying to trace it back. And you can trace it back as we often can do to the very beginning, in fact, to the first verse. The marriage to Pharaoh's daughter, in effect, is the seeds have already been sown for the destruction of the kingship and the exile of the people. It's the, it's the Egypt connection, which the Torah warned us about in the book of Zvarim when it talks about the king. Not too many wives, not too much money, not too many horses. Let him not bring you down to Egypt. So Egypt is the opposite of kingship. Kingship is about autonomy. Egypt is about slavery. So we're ready before he builds the temple. It's already, one might say, he, he, he undercuts the very temple itself by the marriage to Paro's daughter. That was the main point of last week. And what I tr have tried to demonstrate is this idea can already be found in the book of Muachim itself. Because what Solomon is known for, and this we'll see today, one of the things he is known for 
is great wisdom. There is none wiser than Solomon. And in point of fact, not only is he very wise, but two of the key books of, we would say, wisdom literature of our Bible, the book of Proverbs, which is certainly a book of wisdom, and the book of Kohelet, which is also, I would call it a book of wisdom as well. These two wisdom books are ascribed to Shlomo. On top of that, we have a third book, which I wouldn't call a wisdom book, but a rather unique book, Shira Shirim, which is also ascribed to Shlomo. Doesn't matter who wrote it, but these are three books ascribed to Shlomo. And the book of, of Murachim says that Shlomo is very wise. He had many proverbs or parables, and he wrote many poems, many songs and poems, Shirim. So we know of him from Murachim as a wise person. People come to hear the wisdom of Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, and others, the whole world is struck by his great wisdom, his chachma. And he's also a poet, and he's a perhaps a songwriter, very much in the spirit of his father, David. We'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes. And he's, there are three books. What's interesting, so first of all, just to review, and then we'll begin in one minute, the building of the temple, which he's known for, he's the builder of the Beit HaMikdash, the prerequisite to building the Beit HaMikdash in the Torah is one thing, Chachma. B'tzal is chosen by God and filled with God's spirit. That means God's wisdom. B'chachma b'tfuna uvedat. That's B'tzal. So the wisdom, Rachshov machshavot, Murechet machshevet. That's what we need to build the temple. Who is more appropriate to build the temple than the wisest of all people, which is Shlomo, the Chacham. He, he as God appears to him in a dream, what do you want? I want chachma, knowledge, guidance to judge the people. He's already a chacham. So the chacham gets more chachma. The chacham is the greatest wisdom is to know that you need more wisdom. So he's the great chacham. But in chapter one, King David speaks to his son Solomon and he says, you have to kill this one and kill that one to make yourself the king. And there's a problem killing these two people but you're a Chacham, says David. You'll figure out a way. So the Chachma is employed to kill his political enemies. And the Chachma is employed to build the temple. But already before he employs the Chachma to build the temple, he's already used the Chachma to kill. And we know that killing and temple seem to be mutually exclusive. King David can't build the temple. He says in the book of Divrei Ayamim, because God said, you're a, you're a man of war. You're, 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 you're a soldier. The temple is a place of shalom. We need someone who represents shalom. And his son is named Shlomo. So on the surface, he represents shalom. In the book of Chronicles, he does represent shalom. Because there's no killing in the book of Chronicles. But in the book of Murachim, that's a different story. So the Midrash is picking up on something which I think is very present in the biblical text. And the question the biblical text is raising is, even before this fellow starts to build the temple, one might say even before he really starts to be king, he became king, but now he's king. And what's the first thing we know about him? Paro's daughter, Mitzrayim. But that's a, it's a non-starter. I think we can actually ask a different question. I just throw it out there to think about. I've maintained for many years that in the reading of the book of Shmuel and the beginning of Morachim, it's not that 
the kingship was fully established and David David loses the kingship, but more that the full kingship of David never happens. And never happens for two reasons. One is because the one who, sh who really should be king, who might've been king, who had the appropriate bona fides to be king, was his son Absalom, who defends his sister, who, who carries out judgment against his brother, but that's the correct judgment. He has the qualities of David, he has the cleverness of David, people love him. And that never happens for a variety of reasons. So one might say that the one who really should have been king never makes it. David never in the book of Malachim particularly cares about Shlomo. He doesn't choose him. He's maneuvered into it. And then when Shlomo assumes the throne, before he does anything, we're told right away he connects to Paro. So it's, it's finished before it starts. I want to add one more point about connecting to Paro, which is central in Malachim. And we'll come back to this again in the, in the, in the Bavli. And that is that the, the book of Kings, the book of Mulachim, think about the book of Mulachim now. So there's the vision of the kingship after Shlomo's death, and we'll talk about that. And then the two kingdoms, one is the kingdom of Judah, which has the temple, and the other is the kingdom of Yeravam ben Nevat, Shlomo's adversary, and he, he builds two golden calves up in the north. He's the main king, but that's, he's not legitimate because he built the idolatrous temples of the north. If you, so the kingdom of Israel is exiled first in the book of Kings. The kingdom of Judah is exiled later, later in a series of exile. There's the first exile, there's the second exile, there's the third exile. The first exile is Yechania, King Yechania, who was mentioned in Megillat Esther. Mordechai was exiled in the exile of Yechania. And in the book of Kings, there's one king who is blamed, sort of the, the, the final straw, the last act. There's one king who was blamed, the wicked king who actually, he's the one through whom the exile was fully determined. And what is the name of the wicked king who determines the exile in the book of Kings? Who knows? Menashe? Menashe, of course. His name is Menashe. Now the names, of course, we know very well. The names are not names. I mean, they're names, but they have all kinds of illusions. When you hear the name Menashe, of course, the first thing you think of is not Menashe, the wicked king of Mulachim, but Menashe, the son of Joseph. Menashe is Joseph's oldest son. And this is the theme in the book of Kings in general. What dooms you in the book of Kings is the connection to Mitzrayim. And Menashe, of course, is the son of Joseph who represents Joseph's connection to Mitzrayim because why is he named Menashe in the first place? What does Joseph say? Thank God I've been able to forget my father's house. Menashe represents Joseph's feeling of, I've made it in this foreign land, I'm a success. No one helped me. Menashe means forgetfulness. So my point is the one who dooms Israel, the one who dooms the temple is the person who in the Torah, he's a positive person in the Torah and the tribe of Menashe is very positive. 
but the name Menashe represented Joseph's, at that point in Joseph's life, his desire to separate himself from his brethren and to plant his roots in the land of Mitzrayim. He's the one that dooms the people. He's the one that sends us effectively out of the land in the book of Kings. So coming back to Pharaoh's daughter, the point I would make is that Pharaoh's daughter was his chapter three, verse one, but you might, might as well call it chapter one, verse one. Chapter one, the first couple of words, and Solomon became connected to, in the deepest way through marriage, Paro. And the, the reader puts down the book and says, it's finished. It's gonna play out, plays out in very interesting ways. But that's the first verse. And Menashe is the last, is the last straw, it's the final nail. So that's what this Midrash is picking up over here. That the night of the temple, that's what we saw last week. I did want to add one detail to this that I did not mention last week, something to think about. And you know, the Midrash, what's interesting is, and I'm, then I'll, after this, I'll stop and take comments or questions. The Midrash is, in a certain way, it, it, it's, very, it's very modern in a certain way, it, because what it picks up on is the interconnectedness between different stories. It's really reading these stories as kind of intertext. Sometimes it takes it very far, but at its core, at its core, it's really seeing something about these texts. So the idea of this fellow who goes to sleep and the keys to the temple are under his head, but he's lying there in a drunken stupor after seven years of not drinking because he's busy dancing all night with Pharaoh's daughter. What does that remind you of? I, well, a bad question because I'm thinking of something which would remind you of it. But the idea of, of putting something under your head. Oh, Jacob. Of course. It's the story when Jacob runs away. He's running away from, his, from Asaph and he yeah. goes to sleep. The, the, the sun is setting and he goes to sleep and he doesn't realize, he doesn't know that he's sleeping in the holiest place. He has a dream. In this dream, he sees the angels ascending and descending the staircase to heaven. He sees, one might say, the heavenly temple. Right. And when he wakes up, he says, my goodness, he says, he's frightened. I didn't realize, he says, this is God's house. And this is the gate to heaven, heaven's gate. This is God's house means not that this is God's house. It means above me is God's house. The ladder is the gateway to heaven. So above, on top of the heaven is God, Hashem Nitzav Alav. And I didn't realize I'm sleeping at the, at the, to the, do the doorway of heaven. He had taken at that point, a bunch of rocks and put them under his head. By Yosem by unknowing, he had taken a bunch of rocks and goes to sleep in the place from, from which the angels ascend to the heavenly temple. So when Jacob wakes up, what, is, what does he say? He takes a vow. If you, if you would be with me, God, if you protect me, you'll take care of me. You give me clothing to wear and food to eat. Bring me back in peace. This place, this rock, this rock, right? This rock shall become God's house. On this rock, I will build my temple. It's what the Midrashim call Yerushalayim Shalmata, Yerushalayim Shalmala. 
the earthly temple is opposite of the heavenly temple. So I have no doubt that the Midrash is picking up on this. There's Jacob, unbeknownst to himself, sleeping. He's asleep, not knowing, not realizing that he's sleeping in the holiest place, in the place that could be exactly opposite of the, of the, heavenly, the heavenly Jerusalem. And Jacob, when he wakes up, takes the vow to build the earthly Jerusalem. So the Midrash plays with this. In this Torah story, it's Jacob putting rocks under his head, not realizing that this is the holy place. But in the Midrash, it's Solomon putting the keys under his head. And he should very well realize that he's, he just built the holy place. He already built it. Jacob only promises to build it. Shlomo already built it. So the Midrash takes the opportunity by, to remind us by, by having the story of the keys under his head. It's an opportunity to remind us of the story of, 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 of Jacob, which is about not knowing. But over here, says the Midrash, it's not about not knowing. It's about putting yourself in a place where you become not knowing. And how, how do you do that? Well, if you party all night and drink a lot of wine, and that's the subtext, that can blur your thinking. And Pharaoh's daughter doesn't help. Pharaoh's daughter, Mitzrayim, Paro, undercuts the temple. So the, through the prism of the Midrash, we already have a very nuanced and complicated view of Shlomo. That is a summary of more or less of what we did last week. I left out many things, but that was the core idea of last week. And I added the allusion to the Jacob sleeping in the in in, in God's in the gateway to heaven in Shara Shemai. Okay, before we pick up Rabbi Silber, yes. in a way, when you speak about Shlomo, he was accomplishing a lot. And then at this point, he's like, you know, unraveling a little. Well, I hate to be so uh, hackneyed, but Hashverosh as well is insecure about his kingdom and partying the whole night. And so it's kind of, you have to compare that on a certain level too. I think not only do you have to compare it, in fact, the Medrash does compare it. Hashverosh oh. is, I mean, he's, he's, he's Shlomo with no redeeming qualities. And right. I just want to repeat this. This is an important point. Thank you for that comment. The point is that there are multiple Shlomos. The Shlomo that these Midrashim are picking up on, and the more interesting one, is the Shlomo of the Book of Kings. Because the Shlomo of the Book of Kings is very complicated. And as we will see, the connection to Paro is deeper than just marrying Pharaoh's daughter. And that is, there are all kinds of connections to Paro. So Achashverosh, yes, Achashverosh, the idea of, first of all, the great wealth. Which, which typifies Shlomo, I would say the excess. In the first chapter of the Megillah, not far away from us, the, the, one of the key words in chapter one of Megillah Esther is the little word Rav, great, many, excess. He parties not for one day. He parties for 180 days, and that's not enough. He's got another seven-day party. Drinking in chapter one of the Megillah. Rosie says, drinking. Right? The drinking is, there's a lot of drinking going on at Hashverosh's party, right? Chapter one, the wine of the kingdom was Rav, was great. So it's not just Solomon who is guilty of excess, and he is, but Hashverosh as well. So the Hashverosh of chapter one of the Megillah, as we first encounter him, is about a 
self-centered, uh, hedonistic kind of king. He's also completely amoral. That, that's not Shlomo. Shlomo is much more complex. And the interesting in the Megillah, and I can't get into it now, but the description of Achashverosh's palace, and many have commented on this, is very strikingly similar, similar to the description of the temple and the rules of Achashverosh's uh, palace. What are the rules? There are two rules in chapter four of the Megillah. So this will count for a Purim Shia too. So the point is, there are two rules. What are the rules in chapter four about Achashverosh's palace? Who remembers? There are two rules. Chapter four, the famous chapter of the Megillah. The first rule is- You don't approach if, the king unless you've been asked to. That's the second rule. I'll get to that. What's the and, first and rule? You, and you can't wear clothing that's inappropriate. You can't wear clothes, you can't wear, you can, yes, exactly. You, number one, you can't wear big day evil. There's no mourning inside the temple, inside the court of Achashverosh. That's the story of Nodav and Avil. Moshe tells Aaron, you can't mourn. There's no mourning in the temple. There's no Avilut in the temple. You can't tear your garments. That's one rule. And the second rule is, you can't walk into the inner chamber to the Holy of Holies, lest you die. You need permission. And that's what Esther says to Mordechai in chapter four. Everybody knows, she says, you can't walk into the inner chamber without being called. If you enter without being called, you're put to death. So the rules of Achashverosh's palace and the rules of the Mishkan are virtually identical. Those are the two key rules in the story of Nadav and Avil. And those are the two rules in chapter four in the turning point of Megillat Esther. So the, so the Midrash picks up on these texts and what interests the Midrash of course which is trying to teach us something is not the Solomon of Chronicles, who's virtually a perfect human being. From that we learn very little, but the Solomon of Kings is much more someone we can relate to, very complicated. So that's in, in short, that's what we that's what we saw last last week. Okay. Now this week let's start with it's an extended uh, extended piece of Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, and I invite. Uh, and invite a, a discussion when we read, we actually read it all, but does anybody have something to say now before we start the Gemara and Shabbat on Daf Lamed, 38? If anybody wants to speak up, now's the time. I just wanted to say that uh, if you talk about the Chochmat Shlomo and you compare it to Chochmat Bezalel, so I look at Chochmat Bezalel, it, it uh, repeats itself many times, it, it's about Chochmat Lev, Chacham Lev. So yes, do you have any true. idea what is this kind of heart wisdom? Well, first of all, the word heart in the Bible does not mean heart. It means mind. Let's start with that. Uh -huh. The word lave in biblical Hebrew, 99% of the time means, means, means mind. Let's okay. start with that. But you're, I think you're very on target, actually. What's missing with Shlomo, what we don't have with Shlomo, he's very wise, but the term with Bitzal that's very striking is Elohim to be filled with the spirit of God. That we don't have with Shlomo. And in fact, the very name Betzalel is striking because Betzalel, Betzalel, which means in the shadow of God, I, I would argue and have argued that actually Betzalel ben Uri means Betzalel, Selem Elohim. It refers to the human being endowed with God's spirit 
And that's the human being, which is this, the last thing God creates in the first chapter of Breshit is the human being. And Ben Uri, the son of light, that's the first thing God creates. So B'tzal is all about, I would say, imitating God as, as being creative. It's the God of Genesis who creates the world. Mm -hmm. It's the human B'tzal and his helpers who create a space for God, a smaller space for God in this world. So that description of being in God's image, B'tzal El, Ruach Elohim, that I don't think we find in the book of Murachim in connection with Shlomo. He's very wise, he's very clever, but I don't think you'll find him as, not at least not described. Now he will, and we'll get to this, and we have to mention this, he has a glorious prayer upon dedicating the temple. It's one of the most beautiful prayers that we have, and it's right on spot, and it's amazing, and we can't discount that. But we're not gonna be focusing on that here in the class called Solomon and His Demons. What interests us much more are the demons. The other stuff's interesting as well. We'll get to the demons. Okay, so let us begin now with, Noah, can you post that Gemara in Andaf? Yeah, one other thing. I do have a question on the, on the chat here or whatever about chapter 31 of Proverbs. Uh, is that ascribed to Bathsheba? I don't think it's ascribed to Bathsheba. The first nine verses, what the questioner was asking about is, I didn't catch the name. Was it Lily? Somebody, I don't so the, whoever asked the question, because verse number 10 to the end of the book of Proverbs is Eshet Chayo. So I'm not sure that the Midrash identifies, it could be that it's identifying with Bathsheba as well, a woman. But the very striking thing, by the way, and I can't get into this now about Eshet Chayo, and many have pointed this out, that the description of the Eshet Chayo bears some striking similarities to the description of uh, a different woman, namely Ruth, but talk on the old Lila, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And of course, the story of Ruth getting up at night is not exactly the image that we have of the ancient Chayo. She gets up at night and lies semi-nude next to this, next to the, next to the Boaz. That's the, but the point is that the language of ancient Chayo, and Ruth is called an ancient Chayo. Kiyodek or Sharamiki, ancient Chayo, whoever wrote it and who knows, but the literary character that we identify, I think, with Eshet Chayel is the woman that's called an Eshet Chayel, and that's Ruth. And the story of Ruth is, as I said, she is a, a virtuous and a great woman, but it's not the kind of, you know, what, 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 what she does in, in the book of Ruth, I would say it doesn't come under what people might think is the typical Eshet Chayel, you know what I mean? In any event, uh, but the first nine verses, the Midrash, is, you know, whether they think Bathsheba wrote it, I doubt, but, they, but they're using that text to make a point about Shlomo. Okay, so is let's it, start uh, now with- just a, Is, is yes. it possible that the concept of uh, Olim Yordim by uh, Yaakov's um, uh, dream um, may also um, be prefiguring the Jewish history, uh, going down to Egypt, going down to Levan, or going up to the holy space as you're describing? Yes, I think that's an excellent point. But to give that point, it's, it's due, it would take me a long time. But you're 100% right. And I'll tell you why, I, why you are correct about this. And there's a lot more to say about it. You've touched on something very important. Because the idea of Olim Biyardim appears two more places in the Torah. That's chapter 28 of Breshit. 
it appears in chapter 46 when Jacob goes down to Egypt. When Jacob takes the family down to meet Joseph and God appears to Joseph and God says to, to Jacob, don't be afraid. And there he's going into Egypt. The first time he went into exile. So it prefigures exile, and the second, the third time we have is at the burning bush. When God says to Moshe, I'm going to go down into Egypt. I'm going to bring them up. I, I'm going to bring them up. Bring them to the land. So Olim Yardim, in those three connected stories are all about actually leaving the land, going into exile, and the ultimate return. That is to say, Jacob going into exile the first time in 28, Jacob and family going to exile the second time, chapter 46, and then redemption from exile, which is the book of Shemot, chapter three. So just off, that's just to address what you're saying, that's actually, when you start, we'll be studying the stories of Yaakov, maybe someday we will, that, that's a very important point. We spend a lot of time on that. That's a good point. Um, okay, so let's take a look now at uh, at the text in in the book of uh, in in Shabbat, Daf Lamed. Okay, so let's take a look. Lamed. Now, this is a very interesting Gemara. This is this is a very long section. We're not going to be able to complete it tonight. I want to see what we can do with this this week and next. And then I wanted to spend the rest of the time on, 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 on Solomon's demons and the famous story of an actual demon, Ashmodai, which is one of the more famous midrashim of the Talmud Babri. But here we have a very long Gemara and it starts like this. The, the context, this is the second chapter of Masechet Shabbat, familiar to many of us, it's called Bamema Dlikin. The parak is about lighting the, lighting the candles for Shabbat. That's the name of the parak. About bringing light into your house on the Shabbat. So the Gemara here, on top of Lamed Omen Aleph, that's not the very top, the top of your page. So they asked the following question of Rabbi Tamchun from the town of Noi or Nevi, they translate here. They asked him a question. What is the rule? Concerning if someone is sick, it doesn't say how sick the person is, let's assume quite sick, and there's a fire burning, and the fire is disturbing the sick person. Are you permitted to put out the fire on Shabbat? Putting out a fire on Shabbat, we presume to be a mu'acha, a forbidden labor, under, under ordinary circumstances, but here it's done to help a sick person. What is the rule? And you would expect the Gemara to say, as it says in several places, well, it depends how sick the person is. If the person is just a little really not sick, has a headache, then no. But if the person is defined as being in danger, or even in the Talmud, possible danger. You don't have to be in actual danger. If there's a possibility of some sort that you might, could lead to very serious damage, to the person, loss of limb or life, then, of course, we are Mechalel Shabbat. That's what you would expect the answer to be, and it appears in many places in the Talmud Bavli. But this Rabbi Tanchum is about to deliver a little drasha, and the Gemara will take this and go on with it. We'll see how far we can get today. He began with the following. 
I'll, I'll read the, you have the English translation. I'll read the, the, uh, the Hebrew Aramaic text, very beautiful actually. He said the Patach v'yomar. He began and said the following. Ant Shlomo, Solomon, King Solomon. On Chach Matach, on Sich Where's your wisdom, Solomon? Where's your understanding? He doesn't answer that question. He is about to go on a, med- a meditation about King Solomon. Where's your wisdom? I have two problems with you, he says, Solomon. One is, you contradict your father, David. You shouldn't contradict your father, David. But not only that, you contradict yourself. Your words are contradictory. And now he goes off on this discussion. David Avicha Amar, your father, David, said, Lo the dead cannot praise God. That we're familiar from one of the Psalms. It's in the it's in the Hallow service. That's what David said. But you said something else in the book of Kohelet. He says, I praise the dead that are dead already more than those that are living. That's the end of the verse. And then, and a few chapters later in the book of Kohelet, you said, a, a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. So we have two problems. First of all, you're contradicting your father, who said that the dead cannot praise God. So how could the, how could the living, how could the dead be better than the living? And then you contradict yourself. Fine. So we move down some more. That, that's the question. That's Rabbi Tanakhum's question. Now he's about to address this question. Lokasha, not a problem. He's going to resolve it. That which David said. He meant the following. A person should engage oneself in the study of Torah and the doing of good deeds before one dies. Because once you die, you can't do any mitzvot. So you should use the time on earth to do the mitzvot. That's what your job is. That's what God wants you to do. And we have a statement in Yochanan's name who had a drush on a different verse in Psalms. A difficult verse. And his drush was this, this, this idea of being free from mitzvot upon death, this is an interesting, results in a very interesting halacha, an interesting custom. The question was, when someone dies, how do you bury them? So there was a custom to bury uh, people in their, in their, in their tawit to bury them in the Tawit. And there was a custom, and I can't get into this whole business, it's very interesting, that they would cut the tzitzit, they would wrap someone in the Tawit, but there was a custom in the medieval times to cut off the, cut off the, 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 the strings. Because the person actually can't actually do the mitzvah. In other words, the idea of living in the world is to do the mitzvot. And what David was saying was, 
but as as the Daushan understands it, what David was saying was to live life fully. Take every opportunity to do as much good in this world as you can, because once we leave the world, we have no more opportunity to do mitzvot, and God, God values the good deed. God values the Torah study, and God values the mitzvot. That's what, that's what David was saying. That's lo hametim yahalulah. So you can't, you can't praise God. That's the halacha, by the way, that the Gemara talks about when you're walking through a cemetery, you shouldn't talk, you shouldn't talk Torah. Because the people in the, those who have died can't participate in the, in the they can't talk with you. It's called Loe Go Rush. So you're sort of making fun of them. I'm studying Torah, I'm doing, and the people around me can't do that, don't have that opportunity. So it's forbidden to talk Torah in the cemetery. That's that's the Gemara in Brachot. So let's scroll down some more. That's, that's that was what David said. And that what Solomon said. I, I praise the, those that are dead means more than those that are alive. But David said the opposite. So Rabbi Tanchum says, he explains it in, in a couple of different ways. Moses, when Israel sinned, the golden calf, Moses was praying to God, many different prayers. God didn't respond. When Moses said to God in chapter 32 of Shemot, golden calves, when, when Moshe said that, then God responded. That's his first. So let me ask you, what do you make of that statement? What do you think that means, actually? What's he, what's he getting at over here? He then goes on to another explanation. What, what does this mean? Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are dead. Right. So those dead are better off than the ones living who are now in this dire strait. Right, but that's not what the, he says. He says that the... Moshe prayed many prayers, maybe his own prayers. Maybe he's calling up other, maybe he's talking about the, the people or whatever, or himself or whatever. He, we don't know what he said. But there's something about these people that are not with us anymore. He, he, he says, God, you have to remember, I've been looking Yaakov, and that works. The other prayers don't work. The prayers for the living don't work. You're suggesting because the living he's talking about is sinners. But it doesn't sound that way from what he's saying. He seems to be saying that there's something about the fact that they've died, which makes them, gives them more ability to be, I guess we'd say kind of Mele Yosha for us, a kind of, they can, they can speak well for us. We have many such stories where, where in, Yermio goes to the, to the graves of various righteous people and asks them to intercede on our behalf, etc. But what is it about Yes, in this case, there are three virtuous people, but what is it about the fact that they're not with us anymore? Yeah? It's one of the Jehillim like that. I can't remember which one. It says what that um, we're not going to be able to praise you after death, so why not leave us to stay alive and we can praise so that's, you? That, that's the first verse. Yeah. Oh, no, you're thinking about, you're thinking about the 30th Psalm. 
מזמושיר חנוכת הבית לדוד. מה בעצם בדמי ברידתי יושחת, היוד חאופר היגיד עמיתך, it's very powerful. That's a song that's the beginning of פסוק אליזם, you know, those who pray every day say it every day and don't realize that it's a very, very powerful song. Very, very powerful song. And, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you're right, that's what it says over there. I had a, I had a different thought, but um, what is it about the fact that they are, I, I made perhaps the point is something else that maybe, maybe this is what you're getting at, uh, Judy, but the point is that uh, having completed their lives, in other words, the point is living in this world, we never know how, how we end up. We never know what's going to happen. Uh, that's what King David was saying. Use this as an opportunity to do good. Because you won't have the opportunity later. But the point, maybe the point of, of Rav Tanchum over here in terms of Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, when he reflects upon life, he says those that, that have left the world already and, they have a, and they've done a good job. They have actually uh, lived a, a, a virtuous life. So those people that have lived a virtuous life, because we never know where you're going to end up. We have no idea. But, we, but you can look at people who have, in fact, lived a virtuous life, and you can call upon them, and they can actually help you. They, they, they can assist you because they have more merit, as it were, than any of us. Because as long as we're on Earth, every moment, uh, things can go any which, any which way. That's possibly what he's saying. That's the, maybe the first point. Of it to, to resolve this seeming contradiction. So it's not about them being dead. It's about them being alive and what they accomplished. Well, that I think is more about the next part. I think that's true. Uh, I think that's the, I think you know, what you're saying, I see more in the next thing that he says. Dover Achev, he says, I, additionally, he has another response over here. Minagosha Lolam. The way the world is, Melech Basav Adam goes there. If a king makes a decree, you never know, he says, if people are going to listen to it or not. In his lifetime, maybe. When he's dead, nobody pays any attention. But take Moses, for example. Moshe Rabbeinu made many different decrees, and people still observe them afterwards. And that, I think, maybe along the lines that you're suggesting, that the point is that, that, that the people, some people, like Moshe, Moshe lives for a period of time. He's mortal, 120 years. But, his, but the work that he does continues to have significance. The work that he does has significance. And that's the point of Shabbat HaTametim Shek And that actually, you can, you can judge people. You can see that. The, the contribution that they make extends beyond, beyond their lives. So that what David was saying is use every opportunity and what, and what Shlomo was saying in his wisdom was, you know, in terms of judging people, you can't judge them in, in the narrow sense of, of the, the, the 70 years or the 120 years or whatever the number of years is, but you can see kind of effect that they create beyond themselves. So that's, I think that's the second interpretation. And then he suggests a third interpretation. And the third interpretation. The previous, third, inter the previous interpretation reminds me why Jews 
don't have birthdays, but they have your side. Well, <laughs> it's true that Jews don't have birthdays. But the reasons actually, I think in terms of the medievals is because we didn't bother with, in other words, because when someone's born, you never, exactly, when someone's born, you don't know what, what's gonna be of them, but when the great one dies and you look at the life, you wanna mark that. But when someone's born, we never know what's gonna happen. So we, especially well, given the fact that many people didn't survive, you know, much beyond yeah. birth. That's also in Kohelet, that's right. Right, that's right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That is similar to the second point, I think. Mm -hmm. And now there's a third point over here. So let's scroll down some more. Keep it down, down, down more. Go, go more, 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 more. Yes, this is it. We'll have to continue this next week. And I wanted to reflect on Shlomo. What, what does that have to do with it? It's very interesting in its own right. But the, the, the sessions are about Shlomo, and I want to reflect on Shlomo. Dover Achim. Now he has another interpretation. My dichtiv. Now again, he's going to interpret a psalm. Psalm 86. A very, by the way, a very beautiful psalm. It says in the psalm, it's called Tfilalu David. The psalm begins a prayer for David. It's in a section of Psalms, book number three, where there is only one Psalm that's attributed to David. All the other Psalms are attributed to Asaf, to Korach, not to David. But this one Psalm is attributed to David. And the verse is, the Psalmist says, Asayimi otgutova The person in the Psalm, let's say David, says to God, show me a sign that those who hate me may be put to shame. And now the Midra, the Gemara of the Bavli, the Agada, has a conversation between David and God. David said to HaKadosh forgive me for that sin. That's the Bathsheba story. Forgive me for the Bathsheba thing. You're forgiven. Give me a sign in my life that I am forgiven. I'm not going to give a sign during your lifetime. But I'll give a sign in the time of your son, Shlomo. Now, what is the sign? So you're not, I'm not giving you a sign. You know, people want certitude in life. You're forgiving me. Show me, show me a sign that others will know, maybe that I will know that I've been forgiven. So let's scroll down. So now we have the following story. Here it is. We come back to the temple. Shlomo built the, built the temple. So he wanted to bring the ark into the Holy of Holies. The temple's built. He wants to bring the ark into the Holy of Holies. But the gates clung together. The gates wouldn't let him pass through with the ark. Omar Shlomo Esrim the Abba Renanot. Solomon uttered 24 songs. He wasn't, he wasn't answered. Patach Amar. And then he said, which happens to be Psalm 24 by coincidence, I think. Mm. Open up gates. Open up, up, open up your gates. Let the king of glory enter. Riatu Batregum Nivlay, the gates ran after Solomon to, to swallow him up. Amru, 
said, who are you referring to when you say the king of glory? They think he's referring to himself. Right? Let me clarify. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about God. So he repeated it. The, the verses repeat. The end of the 24th Psalm. And then he says, Hashem to Melch, and he clarifies. I mean God, I don't mean myself. Hashem Svaot, the God of hosts. The God of hosts, the God of God of heaven and the God of earth, perhaps. However, the gates were not impressed. They wouldn't open for him. But when he said, this is a verse in Divrei Hayamim, he said, remember, don't turn aside the face of your anointed one, referring to David. Zohra, remember the kindnesses, the loyalty of David, your servant. Then at that moment, when the sign, the gates opened on account of David, David's enemies, their faces blackened, and everybody saw, Didn't Solomon say well? There's a little poetry here, by the way, in these midrashim. It's poetic, you know? Now, what is the point? We'll get to Shlomo next week. We'll start with Shlomo. But what is the point of this Dover Achir? It's a different point over here. And this actually is, I think, very relevant to the Book of Kings in general and to David. And I think that the, the homily here, the teaching of Tanchum, he hasn't answered the question about putting out the candle yet. We'll get to that at the end, but... What is the point over here? So let me suggest uh, what I think this particular uh, uh, position is, what he's trying to say. David, King David, we know this, we studied this, and those who attended the last sessions about David, the David of Shmuel is an incredibly complex character, and the Bavli does not spare him. It's not just about Bathsheba. The Bible talks about many of David's stories and presents it in a very interesting light and often a very critical light. And the question is, how do you assess somebody? So just read, we read before, we see what people did, you know, Moses issued many decrees and people still listen to them. As the Torah says, and Moses' pupil Joshua took over from Moses and the people did what God had commanded Moshe. Moshe lives on through his pupils. And the vision that he had about living is a vision that people have accepted and adopted and follow and are beholden to. Here, I think they're saying something else actually, which I think is true. And that is the story of David and Bathsheba. It's not David's only problem, but it's the one the Talmud singles out. It's the one the book of Shmuel, I think, focuses in on. It's a terrible sin. It's not just murder. It's using the very kingship to commit the murder it's adultery, it's cover-up, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's handing the death note to Uriah the Chiti to carry his own death sentence. It's a terrible story. And the Book of Shmuel doesn't attempt to, to, to sweeten it in any way. 
And on the other hand, David is the sweet singer of Israel. When David is a king, he's the tzedakah or mishpat. When you read the book of Shmuel, you know, will the real, will the real David please stand up? I mean, who is this man? How do we assess David? And I think that the, this particular statement in the Mesechet Shabbat is making the following point, that sometimes we assess people differently over time. And that actually, long after David is gone, so what 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 are we left with? And what we're left with, I think, is what this this Rav Tanchum is saying. At the end of the day, what we're left with is what David accomplished. What David what David built, actually. The Gemara sees David as the builder of the temple. Solomon builds the physical structure, but it's Mikdash David. It's it's David's temple. And that, and David, David wanted to build the temple. And David in the book of Chronicles lays the foundation for the temple. And David discusses how to build the temple. And David is committed to the temple. And David would have built the temple differently, not the way Solomon built it. And we'll see that next time. Solomon builds it differently and very problematically. David would not have done that. And I think the point over here is in assessing people over time. I think the point is that we get a different perspective over time. Some of the personal wrongs the person did, and most people do some wrong, uh, that becomes very secondary. And in assessing the person's, uh, the person's gifts to the world, I think the point is what, what we are. In your lifetime, no. In your lifetime, because the people you hurt are still around and because it's too raw, and because we're going to have a different assessment over time. And that whatever you think of David, and it's interesting, David in the book of Shmuel is very problematic. In the book of Kings, he becomes the, the, the gold standard for kingship. You're either as good as David or not as good as David. And the Gemara is picking that up, that with the passage of time, we have a different view of David. And there are many different views of David. But this particular statement in the, in the Talmud is saying something, very, I think, very profound about the way we view people and the way we assess people. So there's no contradiction. Didn't Shlomo say the right thing when he said, didn't he say the right thing? So this will have to stop at this point. This Gemara continues. It's extraordinarily, I think, poetic and very interesting. But I did want to focus next week on, on, on Shlomo, what this says about Shlomo and the wisdom of Shlomo. And then in the remaining weeks, we will uh, deal with the demons. Uh, next week, we will have a class. It's just before Purim. And maybe I will say a few words about what uh, someone brought up this evening about Achashverosh and Shlomo, because there are all kinds of interesting connections as well. Um, if there are any comments or questions, I'll take them now. I would like to say that the stuff about David, not just the accomplishments of what he built, but in the entire Charata process, it starts already at the end of Shmuel Bet. He doesn't stop like, like with, with Avshalom. It's just a constant feeling of he felt he should be the one to go. So I'm just saying that the, the still living life that he was living was full of Charata and humbleness. I'm not saying, or humility, not to negate what he had done wrong, right, but that part of the big legacy. That is true, that the legacy of, 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 of asking for forgiveness, which he does actually in two very critical stories. One is in the Bathsheba story. He says, I have sinned. And then the last chapter of Shmuel, where he says, take me, uh, if I'm to blame, hold me responsible. That is, I think, 
a critical point about leadership because I think that the Book of Shmuel in general presumes that people in power will abuse their power. Very little in human history, I think, suggests that they're wrong about that. And the only question is, can you confess? Can you actually take responsibility for what you did wrong? Or are you constantly denying that you did anything wrong? But it's sometimes so I feel it's so much, the constant turning himself inside out. Right, I'm and not sure in the book of Shmuel he's turning, I mean, it certainly is a, re a recognition, that's for sure. I think when you read some of the Psalms, especially, yeah. you know, some of the Psalms are Psalm 51, of course, which is one of the greats. There it's about a sense of worthlessness. And over here in Psalm 80, it's an 88, 86, I think it is. It's um, 86 or 88, this one, give me a sign. There's a sense of uncertainty. There's a sense, which is very important. He's not sure he can be forgiven. It's right. presented in terms of my enemies will see it, but I think it's more than that. I think it's that, how do you know? You know, we live in a world of uncertainty. How do, how do you really know? Give me a sign. And uh, I think that's very powerful. Okay, so- and when we'll you ask, will the real David stand up? He's right. asked, no, he's asked Shlomo to do some killing. I mean, and so he's following through on that, you know. I understand. That's, that is the way the book of Mulachim begins. I, I think the David character is very complicated. We will look at Shlomo next week in terms of Solomon's wisdom. You can't study Shlomo without dealing with the temple and without dealing with the wisdom. And we'll try to deal with both and then we'll get to the, to the, to the demons. Thank you. Okay, see you next week. And we have a whole bunch of different classes. You should see what's going on at Trisha. It's very interesting.